Sometimes when we talk, we don't know what the f so we have to call and ask a friend. I wanna know the things you know, it'll make a better show. You're the one on whom we Hey everybody, welcome to UNFTR. This is a special episode of Phone a Friend because we get to do another in-studio version of Phone a Friend. And this time is with a real friend, like a genuine friend, somebody that I've known for now more than 20 years, although neither one of us really wants to admit that we've known each other for that long. <laughs> this is uh, one of my best friends in the whole world, and um, I, I'm really excited to have this conversation today because we've been talking a lot about some issues that really intersect with the things that we talk about in our friendship. So the some of the things that we focus on on this pod, obviously, the intersection of, of politics and socioeconomics. And over the last couple of years, we've dipped a toe into religion. We've dipped a toe into uh, the role especially that the evangelical strain of the of the of the right has played in shaping and crafting policy some economic policies uh, certainly some foreign policy but also uh, the nature of the candidacies that we see on the Republican Party and how the the steady rise of conservatism to radical conservatism on the right has been fueled by evangelical fervor and so we've talked a lot about that. I've revealed uh, where I stand on the impact of religion on society and on politics. And uh, I've been chastised by several of our listeners for being a little too casual and a little too flip about religion in general. And part of that is informed by my atheism, for sure. Part of that is informed by my frustration at the lack of separation between church and state, but also the acknowledgement that I understand that some things have always kind of been this way. And there's always been a tension between faith and politics in this country and in every country and every nation state and in every empire from time immemorial. So I know it's nothing new to the United States, but I've allowed my frustration to kind of seep into the discourse in a way that I think is actually rather unhealthy. And I've had a few listeners say to me, you need to go in, if, if your mantra and your mission for the show is to, quote, meet people where they are, you have to recognize that there are still many people in this country of deep and abiding faith that can also be progressive and open-minded and loving and warm and not at all kind of what we see as the, the worst actions of the worst actors uh, in the religious community uh, as it comes to, you know, crafting public policy. So... Uh, I did want to bring in a very dear friend of mine. So this is unusual for us because, as you know, I'm um, quasi-anonymous and, and, and tend not to talk about uh, my personal life all that much. Uh, but this is one of my closest friends on the planet. And he is a reverend and one of the figures in my life that I lean on probably more than I should um, because he's a very busy person. 
but somebody that I that I have had the opportunity to sit and have some very, very deep discussions about the nature of faith and the nature of politics in this country. And I'm very excited to have this out in the open. I'm calling it very casually Bible study uh, because we're going to do some scripture, not intense scripture, but we're going to talk a little bit about the role of faith, the role of the church uh, in politics today. Um, and we're going to get off on, I'm sure, several diatribes. So it is my great pleasure to introduce you all to my very dear friend. His name is Reverend Roger Williams. And Roger, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our audience and letting us know, everybody, who you are and where you actually preach. All right. Thank you very much for having me, friend. Uh, and I use that word uh, with an understanding that we do have a great friendship and I'm appreciative of being here with you. Of course, as you've already heard, I'm Roger Williams, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Glen Cove, Long Island, New York. I've uh, been there now for, this year will make 25 years. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm a father. Uh, that's very important to me as well. I, I share great affection with our host, uh, the care we have for our family. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's about it, as far as I know, that's important to mention about me. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more to you than than just that, and it'll be revealed over this session. But yeah. um, I mean, one of the things that we've spoken about recently, mm-hmm. just to get right into it, sure. is the um, the effect that the evangelical strain of uh, the Christian faith has had on politics. And uh, I thought it would actually be helpful to start with your experience in that nexus between public policy and faith, in that you have been a leader on a community development organization. You've been in a leadership capacity in a regional chapter of the NAACP, uh, but you also lead a congregation in faith. uh, And um, there is a a very distinct, there's a difference in my mind, at least, about the role that the black church has historically played in public policy and the public discourse and in the political arena. Can you just talk briefly about the so-called tradition that is in the black church and and how it came to pass that the black church was so um, demonstrably involved in politics in this country? Yeah, and, and that's a comprehensive subject. Obviously, uh, I can't cover all of that. And you you said a brief, and I'll do the very best I can with, with um, the effort to try to give a brief understanding of it out front. The, the black church as an institution rose because former African slaves, and, and of course the black church existed during slavery, uh, but as, as let me start with the 13th Amendment, the eradication of slavery, uh, except for the cause of a, of a crime. The, the, the black institution that we know to be the church emerged because those uh, African slaves, former African slaves, had no agency in the world. They had no institutional strength for representation. So it became the the everything, if you will, of of what it meant to exist in the absurdities of America, of trying to emerge from the abyss of slavery and then stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with peers that were once your owners. <laughs> uh, uh, to put it plainly, and the the institution 
of the black church was not concerned, I believe, from what histories I have been able to uh, read uh, and consume and then hear orally from others who could talk more on the subject uh, in an authoritative way. It it was not—the institution of black church was not involved in politics for a political viewpoint on issues. Uh, The black church had to pay attention to the political movements of the time because its adherents were concerned with the protection of their identity as human beings. You have to remember now, and and people of this time, when I, uh, of the time period that I'm making reference to, 1865 and beyond, they were aware that the United States Constitution had given the prescription of three-fifths of a person as the identity of the African uh, person of African descent in the form of African slave. These people were not deemed human. Uh, the black institution that we call the church gave voice to those people who wanted the nation to recognize their God-given humanity in the world, that we were not just here for, to be chattel, uh, that we're here to be someone's property, someone's uh, to move at someone else's wishes, but to have that full freedom. And I think it was very clear that, you know, when you look at the poetic words of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The black church institution gave leverage to voices there to affirm that we are a part of this. Um, we, 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 are, we are two men and women, uh, and we can participate. And that's why the 14th Amendment was so important, protection under the law, equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment that gave voting rights to African-American men. Um, this was the push and the pull, and this is how the— this is, I believe, the genesis of the black church's involvement in the wider, broader, holistic scene that involved the political life of those people, how it got moving. It was never about a particular political view on this issue or that issue. The black church saw a need to assail the ears of a leadership in this country because it was about the humanity of the people having a, a, a place in the world where we were participating as our white brothers and sisters were as well. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing in the church and your path to yeah. becoming a reverend and the conversations that, or I guess the, the what is the institutional framework to allow for political discussions behind the pulpit in a way that I feel like is distinct from the path that other institutions take in this country, which is not to say, mind you, that the Catholic Church, for example, hasn't exerted at different periods of time enormous yeah. influence over the politics of this country, yeah. or that um, you know uh, members in the Jewish faith haven't been you know keenly aligned with strategic political visions in in accordance with their faith. and But I feel like it's discussed at a different level where it is more open, accepted, and almost, I would say, um, you know, because so I've sat, I've, I've sat in your pews a number of times and, and, and I understand from your tradition that it is almost expected for you to not just guide people in their faith, but to help them understand the political landscape within which they find themselves at different moments in history. So I guess, so my, my 
my long-winded question to that is, how determined and planned is that? How talked about is that in your formal education to take over as a, as a reverend? Yeah. Well, there's a diversity of approaches to it, in, even in the black community, black church experience. You might come across a pastor or a bishop or an elder, depending on the denomination of the church, uh, where politics is something to be avoided. There is a deliberate effort to avoid the political discussion hmm. of getting the church involved in those uh, political movements. Um, and there are people who believe, it, even in the black church experience, that our job is to give people the opportunity to grow spiritually through their spiritual awakening and change. They themselves will change the world where they live. Uh, but then on the other side of it, you do have uh, bishops, elders, pastors, and, and I will have to say I happen to be one of them that believe that while that it may be true that the spiritual development of an individual can go far in helping to change the world where they live, we still have an obligation to speak to the systemic and structural realities that house and even nurture those policies and legislative movements that are not just different for us because they differ ideologically. They are, they are a threat to our well-being and our ability to stand on two feet and affirm that humanity. That's it. And so it, what you might see today is about, well, I don't believe in that, so I want to stand against that. My Christian faith says that I should not believe in that. It's a little different for the tradition of the African-American church and the African-American voice in, in the sociopolitical scene because it was mainly about pointing fingers at the institutions and, re, and, and systems that threatened the humanity and the overall well-being of that individual. So in my upbringing coming up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I came up in a very conservative black Baptist church. Now, when I say conservative, I mean theologically we were conservative. My pastor was a very conservative pastor. He did not have a major emphasis on sociopolitical involvement, although he would uh, admonish us to vote. We needed to participate in, in the franchise given to us. And every now and then he might, you know, make a comment about something related to one of the candidates, but he wouldn't call names. That, and that's still very much a tradition. You might say something, uh, a certain person did, said this this week, blah, blah, blah. However, you, you don't call the person's name, but the congregants know who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it, it's almost uh, in relationship to something that is uh, well known as a part of the of the african-american church and uh you know you you had to kind of speak in code language because uh it was part of the black tradition to to be surveilled by the white population there's a law going back uh actually i was just reading this past week of a law in 1848 in georgia uh, because the, the, the New Year's Eve or the New Year's watch night services are very big in black communities because on the very first day of 1863, Lincoln signed the, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, as, as those times approach, 1859, 1860, there, there were laws in Georgia. There was one law, if there's more than seven persons assembled, you got to break it up. Can't be there longer than two hours. Uh 
so that tradition kind of carried on again and again. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but th that tradition kind of carried on in the, the in that way of speaking in a symbolic way about something, but not overtly. Now, there are some pastors who get up and say it directly. So-and-so is not the person we need to vote for. And usually it is leveraged by something that is deemed to be a moral issue about, again, your identity and place in the world being threatened by legislation or policy by this particular person, whoever is running for office. And so, therefore, we need to not vote for that person, maybe vote for someone else. But that that's kind of the way uh, I, I grew up. In, in, my, in my tradition, in a very conservative uh, situation. So let me not be um, reductive about sure. the black church and treat it as a monolith. Mm -hmm. Let's actually unpack it a little bit sure. so that I'm not uh, just, so I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, kind of honoring the different traditions within yeah. the church. Because it, as you say, there's there's the, the, the black cultural experience with faith, and then there's the black church. And those don't necessarily have to be the same thing. So when we talk about your tradition, you came up in a Southern Baptist Black Church tradition specifically. Right. But so, how does how does that differ from other uh, Black religious experiences in the country? So, because I'm I'm painting it with one brush and saying yeah, yeah. the Black Church, but yeah. that that's not really that's not really accurate or appropriate, right? So, right. tell me the different sort of expressions uh, and cultural expressions of faith within what we would consider the black church. Right. And, and let me make sure that I clarify for your audience. When you say Southern Baptist Church, that's not necessarily the Southern Baptist Convention right. that was formed in 1845 prior to the Civil War. You, you're, you're making reference to a region of where I grew up as far as my church being in the South. Uh, it was a Baptist church. Um, and in, in, the, in the tradition that I grew up in, it its theological lens concentrated more on what we believe about Jesus, his person, and his work for our salvation. Um, that differs a little bit in the sense that when you when you stretch out and you look at churches that were that were and are more progressive than the church I grew up in, um more and, and maybe we can even use the word liberal. It was not so much about the belief systems. I believe Jesus died and rose for my sins. I believe Jesus uh, uh, was uh, the Son of God and God the Son. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of scattered pieces that are formal pieces about the belief system that you had to embrace. And what you believed was very much emphasized. When you go out into different uh, traditions in the black church, you see more of those beliefs not being so much important as it is the love ethic that Jesus taught and how that love ethic not only looks within the congregation, but how that love ethic looks in the community, how it stretches out into relationships that not only the congregation has with the community, but how the community relates to all of its citizens, especially the least of these. And, and you, you find different movements in churches that have that, uh, that perspective of their faith. It, it, it comes out in trying to better relationships between people of color and the police department, um, going to agencies and other institutions and, and seeking fair ways in which 
goods and services are distributed, especially to the least of these, the elderly, the orphan, the poor. These are the type of things that you see. Uh, so while you have that emphasis on belief, you do have the, the, that emphasis on what does the love ethic of Jesus looks like, look like in the community. And I have to say, I kind of stand, I, not kind of, I do stand strongly with emphasizing more of what the love ethic looks like among the adherents who are there, but also what it looks like in the community. So you bring up an in- interesting distinction about, uh, I, I would call almost like uh, religious activism within uh the extended parts of uh, of a community and right. the community in this country writ large mm-hmm. in that, uh, you know, we talked a little bit um, before about how other institutions of faith have exerted influence mm-hmm. over systems. Right. Whereas it feels to me, and I don't know if this is accurate or if you would describe it this way, but it feels to me that the emphasis in the quote-unquote black church has been to be more activist and intentional yeah. in its outreach. It's it, We don't have the influence to exert. We can't place people in, in positions of power and authority. We are going to have to do direct activism and outreach into these communities and into the agencies and into the structures of power to try and reorder things in a, in a way that conforms with the expression, whatever it is, mm-hmm. of your faith and your belief system as taught through the lessons of Jesus Christ. Is mm-hmm. that a fair way of of talking about maybe the difference that the role uh, of the institutions have played over time? Oh yeah, yeah, and I think you you you're you're shaping it out very well. Um, and when we say institutions, we're talking about um, from government, your local where, where city hall is, and your local. Uh, where, where you live, where you where you make your uh, your home to live, all the way to where people are hired, where people have to go get treated for health issues. Uh, these are the institutional spaces that the church, uh, the black church, has felt obligated to assail the ears of, in order that people who are involved and the lives are affected by these systems or they have to engage these systems will will meet a just way in which to uh, to be treated uh, will, will be treated justly when they engage those institutions so but you shape it out pretty good okay so let's get into we could go a few different ways here sure. but um, and uh, let me just make a, a side comment to the audience in that when Roger and I have these conversations in another forum. There tends to be typically wine involved. They might (laughs) go on for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) We do say some things that are what some people might consider off color for a progressive (laughs) political pundit and a reverend. So we're going to try to keep a lot of that stuff under wraps, but just understand that if I am loose in my characterizations, that it is from a sense of familiarity and, and and some very well-worn paths that he and I have gone down together. So I don't want you to think that, uh, that I'm being flip or uh, a little too casual with things. That being said, um, one of the things that I've, I've, um, that I will joke with you about is um, the the uh, the the very um, how do I put this <laughs> in, a, in a way that doesn't sound like we're actually just 
sitting in my backyard. Um, <laughs> some of the tensions that exist in the, in in scripture, and yeah. or as I would say to you, uh, tell me more about these fantastical realizations of your ghost baby again, and uh, and how that has you know guided your life. When we when we look at scripture, yeah. And we look at the tension that exists. One of the things that you and I talk about a lot is the difference between fundamentalists, textualist interpretations and yeah. of, of Scripture and what that portends for how you're going to teach your congregation and, and yeah. then how, by extension, that influences uh, the public arena. Right. Which, to me, is very—we're seeing that play out in the purely political realm of, let's say, the court system and the Supreme Court— where there are textualists and fundamentalists on that side that are strict interpretation of what they consider to be the code of law in this country, except when it is inconvenient for the population that happens to be in front of them and or in power at the time. Um, So let's just talk just on strictly religious terms for a second about how you resolve some of the inconsistencies that you find in your primary book of faith from which all of these teachings are right. are intended to to emanate yeah well and I, and I hope I'm answering your question the 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 major issue comes down to and and this is connected to the major conversation we're having in America right now you've heard people talk about Christian nationalists Christian nationalism uh, you make reference to the evangelical right conservative uh, religious movement. Uh, and it comes down to how do we read the Bible? How do we interpret some of the same scriptures that we, we read but come away with a different understanding? For instance, you may have someone who will look at the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. In all four Gospels of the New Testament, you have the story of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, in one Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, there's no a resurrection appearance of Jesus. But his his victory over death is uh, expressed in his absence. In other words, he was not there at the grave when they went to find him. So it was in his absence that he was celebrated, even though there's no resurrection appearance. Now, uh, scholars will tell you that uh, when you look at Mark chapter 16, and I know some of the people who listen to you will recognize uh, the, the the gospel that I'm speaking about, the gospel of Mark chapter 16 ended at verse 8. Verses 1 through 8 tell of his absence, but then later on that chapter was redacted with a story that may, uh, may have been the result of uh, a later developing tradition about the resurrection of Jesus where his appearances are, you know, added. And most scholars will agree that verses 9 until the end of that chapter, which is the last chapter of Mark, they were added, that was added far uh, beyond the original writing of the gospel. Um, and, and, and so, but in all three gospels, you have the telling of Jesus' resurrection. On the conservative theological side, the emphasis is on believing that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. You must believe that in order to be saved, uh, as uh, using that language that's in our lexicon, of religious faith in order to be saved, be redeemed. You've got to believe that that actually happened. But then interpretation can be beyond that, not just literally believing that someone physically was raised from the dead, but that what is the meaning here? 
that the, the writer is trying to convey. And that meaning is that in the Christian faith, uh, the good news that we share tells us that by God's power, there is nothing on earth. And that is symbolized by overcoming the greatest enemy human humanity can have. And that's death. That you can overcome anything, that you can overcome whatever is in front of you, that that which is not of God does not have to stand up to God and that God eventually will have the last word over it. That's the meaning of it. And I think that's the way the ancients thought. We sometimes transpose postmodern, uh, post-enlightenment ideals upon them and viewpoints upon them and perspectives upon the ancients. I wonder sometimes if people like Mark and Luke and the other writers in the New Testament even knew what the word history meant. Because history for them was not about documenting dates and years and time. It was about what does this mean in the context of our created order that God has placed us on the earth for. So you, they, that you might see in the gospel where they might tell a story, and if you go back and check other pieces of history to verify it, you might find that the dates are, are not exactly the, the same. Um, however, that's not what the ancients were after. So the, it, it's not an attack on their credibility in, in so much as it's understanding that they're not really interested in trying to give you accurate dates and, and, and times. They're trying to give you the meaning of what it what it what it says. So I'm I'm laying out those two poles because that's where the tension is today. Believing literally what the scripture says and reading a text and understanding its meaning, especially a relevant meaning for today. Um Roger, how important is it to you yeah. that we're talking about the actualization of a person. How important is it to you that Jesus Christ was a man, purportedly the Son of God, from a virgin birth, who walked the earth at a specific time, yeah. had a craft, mm-hmm. had family, yeah. went on a journey, spoke to God, and and taught scripture, Hebrew scriptures, which uh, I know that there's some scholarly dissent over how he actually, as a probably illiterate man, knew scripture so well. Um, I believe that it was the Aramaic would have been Aramaic would have been the language language he spoke that he spoke. Yeah. Uh, Not Arabic, but Aramaic. Aramaic, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but learning and being able to quote passages that you know, so those the the sermons that he gave in 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 the Galilee years and and beyond, where he was actually preaching right. in in the in the wilderness and and converting and and gathering uh, uh, followers, having such a such a keen and encyclopedic you know idea of the Hebrew scriptures, like yeah. if if I can. If I can get over all of the inconsistencies and 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 all of the improbable events, after all, he's the son of God, so he should be able to actually speak all languages, right? Mm-hmm. But if I can get over all of that stuff, how important is the notion that that this was a man who walked among us in a deliberate period of time? Because it seems like we we try to it seems like the conversation endures after thousands of years where People are trying to justify and fit narratives into very improbable 
if not impossible scenarios to, mm-hmm. to make the point that, no, this was, this was a person. It's just we have no record of this person. And mm-hmm. he was born over here, but then yeah. walked over there for some reason. His mother, virgin mother, walked yeah. over there to, to, to have him. And I don't know. They, the, all of those inconsistencies that, you know, of course, I'm being <laughs> glib and this is the stuff that we do uh, over wine. But how important was it that he was a man? It's very important that he was a man. Very, very important. And I think we need to put more emphasis on his humanity. Because the message of Jesus's place in history has little to do with the high Christology the church developed over years about him. And notice what I said, the church developed that high Christology. Your audience, those among you, of your, your audience who go to church and may have gone to Bible school will recognize that term Christology. It's the study of Christ, which is the development of an understanding of Jesus over a period of time after Jesus lived on the on the face of the earth. But when he lived here on the face of the earth, he was very much a human being. And for me, him being here on earth in a particular time in history was about teaching me how to be a human being. Hmm. He was not here to teach me how to be God-like, uh, which Christology gives him these God-like attributes, right? Uh, he is more than human being when when you get to some passages in the scripture. And what you're seeing is the development of that Christology. You're, you're seeing the elevation of it in the very early um, years of his ministry. Uh, I'm sorry, of, of the church's way that it took after his resurrection, after his ascension. Um, but it's, it is very important that we do give emphasis to the fact that Jesus was a human being just like you and I are. And the implications of Maybe that... Maybe a little more like you. Well, I think uh, <laughs> he was a little... I think you too, you know? And, and I say that because we often miss out on the treat, I'll give that little word out there, of what we can really be empowered by if we if we allow ourselves to see him as a man who walked the face of the earth and dealt with all of the emotions and all of the, you know, stresses and strains that come with being a human being in this world, he dealt with all of that. And he was so impactful in the way he lived in front of those who were with him that they said these great things about him. There was something very special about him in his humanity that the writers and those immediate followers and the writers thereafter had to look beyond their conventional language to try to give expression to how impactful this man was on their lives and on the world that they knew. His humanity, so it was not that he presented himself as this God-like figure. It was that he really took on the mission of what God wanted in a man to be a human being in the world, and it impacted his followers. Is that why he called himself the Son of Man and not the Son of God? Well, the the Son of Man is rooted in in an understanding of of Hebrew scripture, or what we call Old Testament scripture, uh, and it, and it relates back to Daniel. Um, when you read the book of Daniel, uh, the the children of Israel are in captivity to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and um, Daniel has these visions of of a son of man like figure and Jesus draws on that uh it, it, son of man actually can mean it can refer to his humanity yes but it also refers to 
someone who does have uh, divine appointment or divine uh, sanction to be in the world to do what he is called to do. So while it does have connections to humanity when you say the Son of Man, it does, it, and at least among many scholars, it does convey that Jesus had some understanding that he had a divine assignment here on earth to live out his humanity among those he was with. Do I need to accept the Christ figure as this real figure and then into my heart in order to find salvation in your tradition? Or can I live a good ethical moral life and get to the kingdom of God without ever accepting either the proposition that he walked the earth or that he was son of man, son of God? Well, in your a, tradition. As a man of faith, there is a, a call upon adherence to accept the person of Jesus. Now, I will say that uh, this, once again, goes into a conversation about diversity. It depends on what church you go to. You may have some churches that emphasize that you need to accept and believe these things about Jesus that we're teaching you. But then there is also that space within in my faith where you're not so much pressed to believe these Christological claims, and that's what they are, their claims about Jesus, but uh, accept, again, what God has done for you and showing you love and then become a conduit of that love into the community in which you, which you live. Um, I, and in trying to answer your question, in, in many Traditions within the in the church, and I don't just say in the black church, but beyond, you would be required to to know those things, to accept those things. But then there are in some other traditions, uh, the beliefs or the claims are not as emphasized as much. Okay, so so let's get into let's let's converge the the political, the economic, the realities, yeah. the on the ground living uh, with faith and tradition, and talk about some of the dangers of adherence, such strict adherence to whatever faith there might be um, in informing public policy. Because right now, in America today, I would I would I think it's fair to say that the structures of political power are under deliberate assault from a, an evangelical inspired and informed wing of the Republican Party yeah. that is holding the larger party captive. I think that there are a number of Republicans, it's fair to say, yeah. that um, feel captive to this ideology yeah. in, a, in a way. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it strikes me like I just came back from, you know, you know, I was down in Florida again for youth sports. Right. Uh, it's the only reason I tend to see this country. But mm-hmm. more, most recently, I've been in some very rural parts of, of America and in the South. And I, I, my daughter and I have, uh, <laughs> my, my daughter and I have great conversations uh, and we will invariably find ourselves in in a in a part of this country where the the and I think we forget this in New York that's why I'm bringing this up yeah where you'll drive for miles and miles and miles through abject poverty yeah. and then come upon the mm-hmm. most beautifully constructed brand new church yeah, yeah. that 
I made the point to my daughter, if, if you find yourself in a part of this country where the church is the nicest thing that they have, yeah. there's something wrong with that <laughs> church and with, what's, with whatever's happening around mm-hmm. here. And, but it's that attitude, it's that elitist coastal attitude toward faith traditions in this country that has driven a further wedge. So I'm recognizing that my view of that is also part of the problem, that my perspective that any church that soaks the wealth out of a community because it's promising something to that community, that all you have to do you can live in squalor and poverty so long as you know, mm-hmm. as the people of this church are living comfortably, and mm-hmm. that we have a, a beautiful place to go once a week. Yeah, um, that there, there's something fundamentally evil about that, and I and I use that not you know I understand the, the weight mm-hmm. of that in yeah. this conversation. Yeah, I think there's something fundamentally evil about it, but I also recognize that maybe that's not for me to say. Okay. Um, and so that's yet another tension I'm trying to resolve because the way I see it is I'm going into these communities and seeing the what they're showing us is that this thing is the center of this place. Mm-hmm. And if you come here, just know that this is what runs this place. That that's how I that's how I interpret it when I get there. But I also may be doing my daughter or you know the people that listen to this show a disservice. By casually dismissing that because of my frustration that of what the church does to those communities and what the church has by extension done to those legislative districts and then by extension to, to the districts that actually run the state uh, yeah. the state houses and all yeah. these places. Like yeah. to me, it's a cascading um it, it's cascading evil that seems so opposite to the intent of what these churches are meant for that I can't, it, I have a hard time when people say to me you need to be a little more open okay. to all of the different faiths mm-hmm. so it's not a question so much as a I feel like we're in a lot of trouble because of the weight and the gravity and 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 the gravitas that the church writ large has over these communities and then by extension the political process where, what am I supposed to think about this? And how am I supposed to speak to this audience about that phenomenon? And, and I'm, I'm curious to know uh, where, where you were when you went through these communities, uh, because there can be different narratives attached to it. Um, when, when I look now at the present moment of the representation of the Christian faith, in the world by those who say they're Christian. It, it, it's not a religious movement that I identify when I survey what they say and what they do. I don't identify a religious movement. I'm identifying what I believe to be a very political movement, but they're using the wrappings and the, uh, the clothing of religion to express that political view. Um, and that that's where I'm having a lot of problems with representation of the faith, particularly in the West and particularly here in America, because it's it's on the notion that this nation is the new Israel, that America is the new Israel. And if that is the case, and if all of what we see in Hebrew scripture 
according to a literalist reading of the Bible, that there is an errancy in Scripture that if you were to transpose the events of Israel from the Hebrew Scripture, the, the, the Old Testament Scriptures, onto America, then it gives that nation, America, sanction to do what you saw Israel do in the, in the Old Testament. Yes, they were captives, but they also, by God's leadership, according to Hebrew Scriptures, were called to go into different lands and, and claim that land and even get rid of all of its inhabitants. This is a record in the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and then occupy and, and, and pick up domicile in those areas and then make the proclamation that it was God who, who ordained this. Uh, there are progressive minds like myself who have a trouble with that very simplistic transposing of the Hebrew scriptures onto America. Because first of all, I don't believe America is the new Israel. I believe the church is the new Israel. And when we, when we see in the Hebrew scripture, um, this transposing, it's problematic because for me, God had a called out nation according to the Hebrew scriptures, but now he has a called out body. And we're not called to take up military arms and guns and all these kind of things and go into territories and, and, and take over. But we are called to develop a kingdom community that is built, though, on the love ethic because Jesus was the final word that God gave about how he wanted us to live in the world, according to our Christian tradition. It wasn't what we saw through the nation of Israel, and, and I respect the history of it. The Judeo-Christian tradition is what I grew up in. But when Jesus comes along, he's the last word, and it is the love ethic that undergirds the called-out body that is the church that, to me, is the new Israel. So what you have, in my estimation, is a wrong-headed approach by those who are literalist readers of the Bible who believe that you, are, you simply just transpose the happenings of the Hebrew Scripture onto America. And I really believe it's a dangerous thing to do that too as well because now you have the Almighty God giving you the sword to go in and do whatever it is that you want to do. And I think that misses the mark of the Jesus event undergirding our existence with the love ethic. Are there any efforts that you've seen that have been successful in bridging that gap of understanding? Because again, this idea that the in just the political framework that the coastal elites, the Democrats, the liberals have completely lost touch with the heart of this country. That is, I mean, I know the numbers say that the next generation coming up isn't as dogmatically religious or adherent yeah. to it. Yeah. But again, you know, it's like the people that were traveling around the country in 2016 and raising the red flag and saying. This isn't going to go the way you think it is. Mm -hmm. You have to really get into, you got to go to Michigan and then you have to go to Arkansas and you got to go into Tennessee and go into whatever you think is happening in New York and Los Angeles and even Texas or, you know, some of these, you know, the bigger urban environments, yeah. whatever you think is happening, it's, it's, it's not happening. Yeah. Okay. There's yeah. a, there's another movement afoot here yeah. and it is, it is Christian it is um, it is white. Mm -hmm. yep. It is working class, and it is not going to vote Democrat, mm -hmm. no matter what you do. That's right. So there were people that really saw this coming, and even though we get further down the road of 
young people not being as religious as their parents or what have you. I think we've gone through those cycles before, and I'm not sure that that will, I'm not sure that that's a a trend as much as that's a, a moment in time. Because as I go around this country, the church is a very, very significant factor in all of these different places that I see, and I think it wields a tremendous amount of influence over the discourse. Yeah. So have you seen any successful attempts to reconcile this phenomenon, or are we, are we continuing to divide ourselves in a very dangerous way, in your estimation? Uh, we're continuing to divide ourselves in a very dangerous way. Is the is the immediate answer I give to your question? No, I don't see any successful bridges being made. Unfortunately, that is the case. Um, the, the the sad thing that I find about the the conservative evangelical movement in America is that it is white, it is white male led, um, and it brings with it an identity that this nation is just for that person. Uh, white male leadership, the white male survivability. Uh, you remember the horror, of, the horrific um, scene in Buffalo in the supermarket where the young man goes in and he, he is deliberate about who he shoots and kills. And the note then is found. And it's the replacement theory mm-hmm. that, that emerged and became a story for a little while. Now, poof, it's gone. No one's talking about it. It's not, it's not being shared. All of the tragedies that have happened on American soil, there's just some, some kind of way we find a way to mute that. But any tragedy outside of the shores of this country, the, the victims of that tragedy, we seem to be willing to give more voice to that. Um, but I bring up that replacement theory piece in that Buffalo supermarket. I don't remember if that young man claimed to be a Christian. But that replacement theory mindset is among many white evangelicals who are going to vote here in 2024. And that replacement theory is undergirded by the way they read scripture. They see themselves as the new Israel, transposing the Hebrew scriptures onto the church. And so we have to keep out what is defiled, what is unclean. We have to rid the world, rid this uh world of, of of these people and it plays out in the way we talk about immigration in America. Stop by, sit down and talk with some of those brothers and sisters who share my faith but live in Little Rock, Arkansas or live in a rural area of Michigan. Sit down with them and listen to them talk. They'll let you know they go to church, maybe not every Sunday now, mm-hmm. but they do go to church and they believe in Jesus Christ. But when, but you will eventually find unfolding in their minds through what they say is that understanding that Israel was a called out nation. We're to be, we're, we're to move out the, that which defiles us, which makes us unclean. And we're the chosen people of God. That's the way they see America. We are the chosen nation. And therefore we have a sanction from God to clean out what will defile us. And that comes out in the way we hear immigration being talked about. That comes in the way that we hear that we see this migrant crisis, you know, people coming across the border and then uh, this, without sensitivity, these young children and mothers and 
men are being bussed off to New York or bussed off to wherever else that they've been sent to. This is all undergirded by religious fervor. And progressive-minded persons like myself who call for a love ethic for all people on the planet to be shown by our nation, who, who understand that that person coming across the border is my fellow human being. And I need to be asking other questions. What's going on in your country that's causing you to come here to find solace for your children? And did did our country even play a role in the way your country is now? That Not to mention, I mean, it, yeah. it, my very, very limited understanding and, and reading of the Bible is that, yeah. um, or in the New Testament, is that on this part, at least, the words of Jesus are, are pretty succinct and pretty direct yeah. about welcoming strangers. And so are the Hebrew scriptures. Is that right? The book of Deuteronomy shares with the Hebrew people how to be kind to strangers because you were once a stranger in this land. And then over in what we call Isaiah chapter 60, you will be a light unto the Gentiles. So there is this hospitality mechanism that's supposed to be working in our faith but our conservative Christian nationalist evangelical brothers are not representing that. How are they reconciling that? How, what part of Scripture are they using? They're not reconciling it. They're not made to do so. Hmm. There's no—if if they don't have to address it, then they don't have to address it. But when we see them on television quoting chapter and verse, what, yeah. what, when it comes to immigration, what are they looking at? What are they leaning on? Anything? Again, that that concept, that mindset, America is the new Israel. Mm. We have a divine right to make this a Christian nation. Let's and, move over to politics for okay. a minute. Let's all get right. directly into it because <laughs> uh, I want to be conscious of your time here today. Yeah, that's all right. One of the things that you helped me with uh, a while ago uh, was when we put together our episode on um, the I think it was called the the Black and Jewish Divide in America, and that's when I got I revisited a lot of the work of the Rainbow Coalition and kind of went down a Jesse Jackson rabbit hole. You said something interesting to me that that really stuck with me at the time, which was because my my, my at at our age, he's older than me, <laughs> just a little bit, but. I'll, to be fair, I'll say yeah. our age. But at our age, uh, a white person growing up in the East, I was barraged with, I don't even know where, but it, it, it stepped into my consciousness that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton were the cheap knockoff uh, versions of Martin Luther King that were using the church for their own personal gain, that they were not good people, <clears throat> mm -hmm. that they were uh, just in it for to mug for the cameras and to gain power. Um, and and again, I'm, I'm growing up in New York, and that's that it was a very, very real sentiment that we had in New York. And yeah. then I went back and I lived in that time period where Jesse Jackson was ascendant not only on the national stage with his with the Rainbow Coalition and his movements and within the church, uh, but also as a political figure, and had to really study the numbers 
because I was shocked at how close he was to getting the nomination to run for president. Yeah. He would yeah. not have won that year. Yeah. But he was really close. They had to pull out all the stops to suppress his candidacy. Yeah. And I remember going through that with you and saying, I think I got Jackson wrong. Yeah. Can't talk about Sharpton, but I can. Mm -hmm. I, I think I got Jackson wrong. And yeah. you said something to me very, very casually, which was when you were a young man in Baton Rouge, you remember the train coming through, the, the, the freight train that was his movement. Oh, yeah. And said that you're not sure. I think, and, and I, again, I don't want to misquote you, but I think you said something on the, to the effect of he's probably the most responsible for registering black Southern voters than any other person maybe yeah. in history. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that moment in time for you, yeah. that political awakening mm -hmm. in the South mm -hmm. and what the Rainbow Coalition and what Jesse Jackson kind of meant, because I, I want to bridge that to what's happening right now. Yeah. And and I remember how um, Jesse Jackson Jr. Uh, and and just the Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. who walked with Dr. King and I was with him, unfortunately, at the time of his assassination. They came to town, and Southern University, the largest African-American college in the world, I mean, in the nation, uh, is where he came. And those young kids, they were inspired by somebody that looked like them. I was inspired by someone that looked like me and gave us an understanding that being a part of the political process, number one, was an obligation mm. to our ancestors, they, they bled, they died. We knew back then in the early 80s, which when, was when I was in high school and when college years started in 86, 87, 88, uh, the, the, the Jackson candidacy had taken place. He ran against Walter Mondale for the, um, for the nomination of the Democratic Party in 1984. By the time that had taken place, he Jesse Jackson was a, was a large figure to us, but his his ability to get to the grassroots scenes and get people motivated and believe you are a part of this. You need to be involved. Your ancestors died for this. And not only did he point out our obligation to our ancestors, we were talk. He was talking to us, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds, about the things that affected our lives then. And why we needed to show up at the polls and represent ourselves and say, you know, this is what's happening in your neighborhood. These are the judges that are going to read the law and not read the color of your skin. You need to make sure you do the homework. Make sure that if any mm. of you have to go in front of a judge, that he's reading the law and not reading your skin. You need to go and make sure you protect the opportunities for you to get uh, federal monies that are available to you to go to school. A lot of us came from working class families, blue collar uh, of parents were blue collar workers, not making anywhere near six figures. Um, and and we needed help to, to go to college. It, it just inspired. It made people believe they could do more than their former, you know, their, their parents and their grandparents. His, his, his person gave that kind of inspiration. And, and that's a part of him that a lot of people are not familiar with. And, and uh, I appreciate you going after 
the the history and really knowing it in a more holistic sense because I think that's what education about the African American experience is. It, it 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 allows people to see something that took place that's a part of American history, but is is largely ignored. And and I'm suspicious to why why a lot of that uh, people want to ignore that history and and keep it out of the classrooms even. Yeah. So if we bridge this to to what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I try to be cognizant of is not ascribing to the great man theory. Um, Donald Trump will save us all, will deliver yeah. us. Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders will deliver us in the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson can can be the one who brings us into that post-racial environment. Like yeah. that, yeah. the we we have a tendency, and I think it's human nature, to look for that figure to deliver us, to be perfect. Um, and then they wind up not being perfect because yeah. nobody is. Right. So we're in a moment now where our perfect progressive figure is waning in Bernie Sanders. Yeah. The Bernie movement be, really began in earnest around Occupy. And when the forces in the Democratic Party coalesced during covid to really make sure that it was his last run after he was running the table in yeah. the beginning of the primaries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they had to pull out everything to stop him dead in his tracks um, because it would have destroyed a lot of what I think the Democratic Party establishment believed uh, the power base that they they really had. Um, so at least that that's how I interpret that that specific moment in time. So. What happens when a when the the great man disappears? Uh, and I'm using that. You know, I'm not saying that it's the men that are great. I'm using that as a as a principle and a theory. Yeah. When that figure disappears as the titular head of a movement, Jesse Jackson comes out. Reverend Martin Luther King comes out. Uh, Bernie Sanders comes out of the progressive movement. Um, it fractures and it splinters into multiple pieces. And one of my uh, one of my theories is of what's unfolding right now that I think is so dangerous about the prospect of another Trump election is that on the proverbial left, which is, again, not monolithic, and it's very, very, very diverse. Yeah. We have Cornell West, who should be, um, and I've been very vocal and honest that in New York, I will vote for Cornell West. He will be my candidate because, in, and I, but I understand it's a protest vote that will not affect the outcome in the country. Yeah. Uh, and we can have that discussion again. We can have it as, as much as anybody wants. But I understand the reality of it is is to protest vote. It's no different than voting for Eugene Debs, you know, five different times that he ran for president, right? <laughs> it's saying, this is what I want for the future, but I'm not willing to sacrifice the whole thing at the moment just to please go more in this direction. Yeah. That's what I. That's how I view his candidacy as an independent. But his independent candidacy uh, poses a threat to the Democratic establishment for as much as he'll peel off in the swing states. And then we have uh, Jill Stein, who's going to be a rounding heir at this point, uh, really representing the green portion of the party, but not getting any traction. And then we have the person that I am most concerned about, and that is RFK Jr. So my thesis has been... And I think backed up, I just shared in our newsletter, backed up by some recent polling data. My thesis has been that he's not going to, he is going to pull from all sides. He's not going to pull as much from Trump as he does 
from the Democratic wing of the party okay. for two reasons. One is I do think that part of his message and his experience, be it anti-vax, okay, there's elements of that on both sides. Uh, his environmental advocacy will, I think, appeal to libertarians on the right, and it will appeal to the more liberal wing on the left, if that's your primary voting, you know, what gets you out of bed. Um, but in the in the black community, my thesis so far has been he poses the biggest threat to the candidacy for one reason, and that is that his name, his father specifically, yeah. still resonates in a part of this country among black folk in a way that we are not appreciating and that black voters have two options going forward. Vote down the line knowing nothing will change on the Democratic ticket, um, which tells me more are going to stay home. And we've seen that before. That the black vote in this country will not go to the right, but it might not go at all. And that's the expression that you have to pull and be attuned to. Yeah. But here they have somebody that if they're inclined to go to the polls – but don't want to vote for the establishment for the same old, same old. That guy's got a really great last name. That guy's last name meant something to my grandmother, Yep. meant something to me. Yep. And I'm going to tell my kids that that name meant something in this country because it represented a moment in time where we made a little bit of progress, right? Right. So my fear is that the fracture of the great man theory is leaving the left right now in a position where Depending upon what gets you out to vote, you actually have an option or a really positive option is to stay home. And and uh, forgive me for going on too much about this, and it it, but this is a discussion that Roger and I had a very we had a very deep discussion about this because in the debate that I shared again in the newsletter last week between Brianna Joy Gray and Kyle Kalinsky and Crystal Ball, she was giving a Brianna was giving a perspective that from it was a it was a decidedly black progressive perspective that I understand what you're saying about incrementalism and about the existential threat that Donald Trump poses to democracy. But which democracy are you trying to sell me? Yeah. Because whatever version you're trying to sell me is not available to me. Okay. I don't see it. I don't feel it. And her words are really sticking with me in a way that I can't, um, I can't escape. And so, again, I pose it back to you, not that you are now the mouthpiece for the entire black experience in America, but as a yeah. pastor, as a father, yeah. as a man of a certain age where the Kennedy name will resonate yeah. and where you actually have to convince people to get up because they have to vote for their best interest. I mean, you're at an interesting intersection to, I think, to kind of interpret this moment in time for the black experience in America. What happens at the polls Come November, what do you think the sense on the ground is going to be within the black community, and how is the church going to respond to this moment in time? I'm very concerned that by the time we get to, to November, um, many African-American eligible voters just won't find a reason to get to the polls. Okay. That's a concern of mine. Um, you, you've seen some reporting that that's kind of the trend at the moment. And there is a bit of a ways between now and November. I understand that. But what I'm also looking at is some of my own experiences on the ground, you know, trying to get out and uh, get people to vote. 
in many of the local elections we've had, uh, statewide even, some of the questions you still get is, is Mr. Obama running? Mm. <laughs> and and no, well, no, he's not running, but it's very important that you be a part of this election. And 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 what what I think is still resident in African American people today is that they see no representation of themselves vying for these places of power to help make change. And uh, that's where does Cornell West fit into that? Then Cornell West is an intellectual. Um, and I think there's a, and so he he's he's sort of been more understood in in the in the uh, in the arena of of the intelligentsia. He doesn't come in many ways. He doesn't translate down to the everyday, the you know the ins and outs of what goes on, you know, with the real working class guy. There there are people, of course, who appreciate his work. And how he represents uh, uh, his his feel, but he doesn't have that common touch the way that Mr. Obama was able to have, or even Jesse Jackson when he ran for president. And and I know you were cautious about Al Sharpton, but to some degree too, Reverend Al Sharpton had that ability to understand this is what this grandmother is going through that has to get up in the morning feed these grandkids because she don't know where her daughter is right now and get to work so she can make money to take care of those grandkids. Um, and yet Cornell West has articulated uh, understandings of public policy to, to make sure that, that the least of these in our country are reached. But um, he, he doesn't have that connectivity, I think, to the everyday person. Uh, in that way, though he's re- though he is respected and he is loved, and people read his books, uh, people listen to his lectures. But I, 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 and not only is it that factor, people look at him and say he doesn't have a chance to win. Mr. Obama didn't really have a chance with black folks until he won Iowa, I think, in in one of the primaries. No one really they saw him, mm-hmm. and, oh, black guy running for president. That's cool. <laughs> You know, he, he he has the right to do that. Yeah, let him run. <laughs> but everybody, but but hey, this person is going to be the one that wins. Right. But when it was seen that he could be embraced beyond what people imagine, that, oh, hey, let's, let's jump on this bandwagon. And and I think there was an intelligent understanding of what he stood for. There were expectations of him, whether they were within his purview or not. There were expectations of him as president, not just because he was black, because you had other blacks running for office, too, but they didn't fit the profile as far as um, what they felt would be good for their communities. Um, so because he, he because he's mostly understood, meaning Cornell West, he's mostly understood within the hallways of, of what uh, of the intelligentsia and not in the common sectors of everyday life and to. He's not electable among a lot of black people. A lot of black people probably thinking he's not electable. So right. that's why, you know, you're the groundswell for him. And am I overselling um, the the depth of resonance of Kennedy's name? To a younger generation of young people coming along, I would say 35 and younger may not have that affection. They, they may not be attached to him 
uh, with the same affection that maybe my mother or my grandparents would have with with the Kennedy name. So let's talk about that core voting block right in the middle, though. Let's talk about the, yeah. the, the grown up that is inclined to show up because it's programmed. That's what they do. That's yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so it let's say it's 50 plus. OK. Right. They always go. They're always going to pull the lever. They're going to do it. Does the Kennedy name resonate within the again? I, I hate painting things with a single brush, but within the larger black community, does the Kennedy name still hold some weight? I think it. you can say that it does, but not without scrutiny about where he is on policy. I think the anti-vax, the, anti, the anti-vax stance that he has would be very troubling for a lot of African-American people in the, in the African-American community, given the fact that African-American people, especially during COVID, had to overcome the documented past discrimination in science and medicine. But many of them saw black and white in the same line and wanted to be protected from this thing that they saw themselves hauling people off to hospitals, not to be treated, but to die. So his anti-vax stance would be problematic among many African-American people, I project. And and yet again, the the his anti-vax stance is rooted in a deep mistrust yeah. of science in the medical community, right. which my understanding is a shared that is that is it's there. There, there's mutuality between the, the black community. It's there, it's there, and, and I don't want to underestimate that. Uh, your audience needs to know, yes, there are people in the African-American community who still don't trust the government, don't believe that, you know, we're being told the truth. And many of them believe that that, that that's all they're being fed in, in every circumstance or situation. They're being fed lies. I, I, that, that's, a, that's, that's still there. But there are many African-American brothers and sisters who don't hold to these conspiratorial theories or and, and that's how they see them as something a part of the conspiratorial uh project that, that seemingly uh has developed more feet over time but um people in the african-american community are aware and are cautious and they ask questions and they want to know when it comes to the issues of medicine and science because of the documented history of that discrimination however when you see black and white in the same line, they're, they're not going to be married to it if they think it's going to help their health. And and, they, and so not pushing for um, getting people in a safe space, vaccinated, so forth and so on, might, might be a bit of a fly in the ointment when it comes to them holistically embracing him. That 50-plus crowd that you just mentioned, holistically embracing him on the strength of, of the Kennedy of the Kennedy legacy. Okay, so let's talk about representation then, because if if uh, I, I I think we're we align on the idea that the greatest threat within that voting block for the next election is sitting it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to talk about that that piece of what Brianna was saying that really resonated with me about what's the difference. So we could we could list. Uh, and this this gets into talking about the 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 Biden term and the accomplishments. One of the talking points on the left is that we should 
we have to grin and bear it and vote for a Biden second term because <laughs> we didn't expect him to be this good. Okay. Um, the infrastructure spending, though long overdue, got done. Yeah. Um, the clean energy programs, there's going to be some heft mm -hmm. behind the funding there, uh, assuming that he can get a second term and that the money can actually flow through. Yeah. Um, that on at least there was an attempt to resolve the student debt crisis, even though, aw shucks, it didn't work out mm -hmm. in our favor. At least there was an attempt to, um, you know, to sort of at least beat back through executive orders some of the uh, some of the the rulings through the Supreme Court that the effort we should give him an A plus for effort and just see it through because the spending packages that are coming behind it are are too important and what Brianna was reflecting in that debate was I hear you. They promised to do something on student debt. They didn't. That impacts me. They promised to do something different, better for affirmative action. We lost. Mm -hmm. That impacts me. Mm -hmm. We promised uh, that uh, this bottom-out, middle-up idea would involve things like an expansion of benefits and paid time off and paid leave and parental coverage and, and all these things that – Yes, we got a he lowered prescription drug prices and he gave people, you know, the ability to maybe have a more dignified retirement and all these kind of things. But as she was saying, like, just again, when you, I think what you're underestimating is that there are there's a large swath of now I'm not speaking specifically about the the black voting experience in America. Yeah. I'm just speaking about the the middle working class in this country genuinely saying, if I look at my bank account, if I look at my credit card debt, if I look at my stress level and my experience in this life, and then you put the four years under Biden and the four years under Trump next to each other, there's no difference for me. That's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to explain to you. There's mm -hmm. no difference. Yeah. And the pushback against that is how can you say that this other guy is going to end democracy this yeah. other guy's a nazi he's yeah. literally going to yeah. kill people at the border yeah. he's going to yeah. take out his he, he's promised retribution for all his political enemies yeah and her saying and so yeah that's a really hard thing for some people to wrap their minds what do you mean and yeah it's difficult for a lot of people and and I, and I have run across people with that conversation uh exactly you know developing as you've just talked about it I'm, I, can I just start with something max um it was a Saturday night live skit that Dave Chappelle did. And yes, I'm a preacher. I do watch Saturday Night Live from time to time. Uh, and Dave Chappelle is in this skit where he's at an apartment where several of his white friends are there and the Trump, uh, elect, it's election night. And it, it, it gives their rendition of the night of 2016 when Hillary Clinton ran against Donald Trump. Donald Trump is elected. And one of the white sisters in the skit says, I can't believe this. We really are a racist country. <laughs> so Dave Chappelle and there's a guest star appearance by Chris Rock. They're there in the apartment and they look at each other like, 
<laughs> Duh. <laughs> We've been knowing this for years. I do hold to a belief that many of our white brothers and sisters seem to be awakened to the America in 2016 when Mr. Trump was elected, that they were awakened to an America that a lot of African-American people had already been awakened to, gone to bed on, and back up again on. That this this nation is deeply rooted in some things that uh, still resonate, that legacy is still there. So when the sister says, I'm looking at what I have before me, all of these changes that the Biden administration have made, I don't, I don't really see any changes. It's coming from that legacy, that, that historical perspective. I've seen my grandmother go through this. I've seen my great-grandparents go through this. I've seen my aunts and uncles go through this. I'm, we're still spinning our wheels at 100 miles an hour and only traveling a couple of inches. That's what's at work there. Plus, let me, let me make this very clear. A lot of African-American voters are seeing the hypocrisy that is now resident and seemingly overt. One of the presidential candidates that you just mentioned said some very derogatory things about black folks, about women, uh, gave signature to some ugly acts against Jews. And there are people in the Jewish community who are going to vote for him. Mm -hmm. There are people in the white community who are going to vote for him. Mm -hmm. But when Kyrie Irving or Kanye West says something that may or may not be anti-Semitic or anti-white, uh, they, they are, you know, they're held to a higher standard. African-American people see that hypocrisy. I don't, I don't owe any person anything is the mindset because you want me to vote for this person. <laughs> Uh, and, and they're saying this to their white friends at work, their white friends maybe down the street. I'm not going to go vote for this person because you think I ought to vote for them. You're not seeing the America that I'm seeing. You've got your perspective about this person running for office. But listen, and there are people who can say this today, who are living today. I grew up when Bull Connor was in, in, in power in Alabama. I, when, when George when George Wallace was governor, I was there. I saw what happened, and we survived, baby. So I, don't don't make me believe that I have an obligation to go vote the way you want me That's to vote. So powerful. When, yes, when you have not seen the changes, we've not seen the changes that I have been talking about. Not just in my generation, but going back to my grandparents, my great grandparents, and that's true for me too. Mm -hmm. As 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 your guest here on this. On this show, I understand that, you know, kudos, man. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you were supposed to do those things. That's part of your job. You're supposed to do those things. But at the same time, I know that when I walk out of a building or out of my home, uh, there's a target on me still because I'm a person of color and it could very well be somebody who is a, a racist, uh, who wants to see me gone because I'm, I'm a person of color or just, you know, the, the, the absurdities of having to try to live a life that's fruitful because the systems and structures are still shaped to, buy it, to be biased against me. So. so let's look through a generational yeah. lens. Sure. Your son, whom I love, yeah. is a 
brilliant young man. Yeah, he is. At a historically black college. Yes. He's an artist. Yeah. Uh, a deep thinker. Oh, yeah. And um, I've learned a lot over the holiday. <laughs> oh, haven't we all? Yeah, when they come back from school, they yeah. come back. I, it's not that they got smarter. It's, it's, it's I realize how much dumber we got. Right? Probably so, yeah. Um, so when you looking at the world through his lens, what's his lens look like right now? What surprised you, uh, you know, as you're getting yeah. to know this young, independent man? Yeah. Um, what What do you think his vision is for the future? How much does he think about this stuff? You know, when I when I talk with him, I I fortunately, and I and I say this cautiously because you 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 pray that it will continue. I do hear a lot of my influence and his mother's influence in the way. He thinks the world ought to go. His mother and I have tried to try to instill in him an, an understanding of what it means to have a moral vision for the world you live in. It's starting right in the immediate space where you are, how you treat people, understanding the value of people, going beyond transactional dealings with people, valuing them for who they are as a creature of God in the world. Uh he obviously being in that generation that he's in, the, and I think it's the, is it Gen Z generation that they yeah. would be? Yeah. Um, they, their social media world is where it's, where it's happening. You know, they get their information from there. Where as much as we might be critical of that, that's where they are. They're on IG, they're on uh, he, I think he thinks he's too young for Facebook, to be honest with you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So other platforms, they're, they're, they're getting their information. And and one thing that my, my son pointed out to me, he said, Dad, I see, I hear a lot of things that people my age feel is important regarding the political situation that's going on, what's going on with the war. They'll express what they feel. He said, but Dad, they, they don't get out and vote like they should, you mm. know. And I said, well, of course, you know better, you know, and of course, he knows better because of the narrative that was handed to us, you know, what my grandfather had to go through to vote. And I think I may have shared that with you in the past. And, you know, what 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 that that cost was for his dignity and his pride to have to go through some of these humiliating things just to cast his vote in the state of Mississippi. But um the the one thing I think that marks them the most, you got to be straight with them. You mm. can't tell any lies. Mm. They know when you are manipulating. They know when you're talking all around your elbow to get to your thumb, as my grandmother would say. <laughs> they know. They have that sense in them. Get to it, brother. That ain't real. That's fake. And they can see it coming a mile away. They probably can pick up on it better than we can, you know. They're more objective, more, uh, they're not married to, I, I'm, I'm a registered voter, they're not married to that. I will vote, but you gotta tell me what's up. What, what to, <laughs> why, why do I need to take a break on my Saturday or my Tuesday, whenever I'm supposed to go to the poll, and abort what I'm doing with my girlfriend or my friends, and go vote. What, what, yo, lay it out for me. That's just the way they are. And I find that 
refreshing a little bit. Uh, We old folk, well, older folk tend to just be on autopilot. You know, when we go knock on doors or we try to get people up to vote, they're called those prime mm-hmm. voters mm-hmm. Uh, in that particular part. You know, the prime voters. And they're, they're going to vote for dog catcher. They're going to vote for how how many uh, sheets of toilet paper should be on a roll. If that comes to the, yeah. they're going to do that. That generation is not married to the proposition like that. They can have a reverence for it. But you got to be practical and you got to be honest and you got to make a case for why they need to take out that time to go. Because I got other things I could be doing. That's their mindset. So before we wrap up, yeah. what's um, as you map out the year? It's going to be a weird year. I don't think we've had a, actually any normal years. I, I can't remember the last time we had a normal year. But Since it's gonna 2001, be a, I don't remember a normal year. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so I go back, I, I watch movies from the 90s, and yeah. I, I'm like screaming at the characters, just you wait. It's not, it just <laughs> right. doesn't turn out the way you think it does. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but, you know, as, as you look out upon this year, uh, again, I, you have, a, you have a, a ministry. I mean, you have, you have people to— yeah. To help, to shepherd, to guide, uh, to listen to. Um, how do you kind of gird yourself for what's ahead? How how far in advance do you prepare your your sermons, knowing that? I mean, I've known you long enough to know that nobody gets more curveballs thrown at you. And you know, I could talk to you on a Tuesday, and, and you'll be on your way to. Um, you know, either some sort of function or maybe it's to, uh, you know, somebody just passed away in your yeah. congregation or somebody's in crisis and you yeah. need to make a house call. I mean, yeah. um, how do you plan your year, especially in a year that's going to be just as wild and, and fractious as this one? You know, that question causes me to really sit down and think about the fact that I need to do that. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) yeah and and it's a great question because it says yeah that question is a reminder you need to do that you know I, i i'm not so much into planning ahead as being prepared for what will come the preparation for me is all right be ready for what will come and interpret in the moment how I need to stand in 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 relationship to my people and they're they're needing me to lead them. How do I interpret this moment and give them the best faith informed way to react to this? If if there's a need for a reaction in the first place, um, you you're you're constantly meditating and praying in the moment not knowing what the next corner is going to turn. And that's kind of the way ministry is altogether. You can plan your week, and I promise you something's going to come along and have you to call to change three-fourths of what you put together for the week. You have to go back and memorize some of the words <laughs> of that ghost baby yeah, right. that you follow. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> have, listen, you have, you have to just be ready to be ready. Uh, and I know that sounds like I'm playing with words, but you have to just be ready to move to the left or to the right you can't have this stoic, stayed thing and then try to marry yourself to it and things are going to work. You, you have to be mobile. You have to be 
you, you have to be adjustable. That mm -hmm. is, is that a way to use that word? You, agile. Agile. Yeah, yeah you got to be on your toes. So I uh, just have to be ready to be ready. That's the best way I can answer that. Is there anything you're looking forward to? <laughs> a lot of the things I'm looking forward to seem to be her Herculean, given where we are. Uh, I'd love to see peace. Um, I really want my son to have a better world. Uh, it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. I want to live to see it. I want to live to see him, you know, in a better space in the world. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I I have to admit, I might be like a lot of the people, even though I'm a minister, I'm ordained to do what I'm doing. I'm not as optimistic about that right now. Um, and um, I'm, I just have to keep keep being prayerful. Maybe even come by your house a couple times and and uh, have you pray with me. <laughs> You know that the dark side always awaits you <laughs> over at my house. Yeah. Plenty of it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, are you still live streaming? Yes. You Sunday are. mornings at 8 a.m. Okay. Why yeah. don't you give the good folks uh, where they can find yeah. you? I'm on Facebook uh, streaming live on my uh, Facebook page, Rev Roger C. Williams, just like as if Reverend is abbreviated, uh, R-E-V-R-O-G-E-R, -E middle initial C. Williams. You go on my Facebook page. It's it's an open page there, and I'm there every Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Uh, teaching. Yeah, I have a feeling that you'll pick up uh, a couple new followers. So make sure you're on point. Maybe, yeah, right? make sure you're on love your to game. Have them. Okay? Love to have them. Yeah, love right, to have don't them. phone this one in. No, 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 no phoning it in. <laughs> no phoning it in. <laughs> um, I'm really bad, by the way, at closing these things out, okay. and have never. Uh, well, I actually had uh, Manny Faces in here, whom you know mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we struggled to kind of cut off the conversation, especially because uh, we're friends. Yeah. Um, so I will. I will try to be succinct in wrapping up. In that, uh, you've been a a, a touchstone in my life for so many different reasons over so many years. It's been very important to me. Yeah. Um, and I hope we can actually continue this type of conversation on a somewhat regular basis um, because I think that um, I, I certainly think that a lot of the feedback that I get from my audience would be uh, well handled and better handled by you. Yeah. Um, so I may start to Kind of keep track of some of the uh, some of the critiques that come mm -hmm. my way that I'm yeah. not uh, that prepared for. Yeah. Uh, so we can have this dialogue. But more than anything, it gives me an opportunity to just say that I love you and, and uh, I want to thank you for uh, being a, a steadfast friend for two decades now. And I'm looking forward to if I mean again, he is so much older than me. <laughs> so I don't know how much more time I have with him, but I, I cherish every minute of it. And thank you for coming on to the show. Love you too, brother. And thank you for the opportunity. The dialogue has been great. I know you're going to do great things. So I appreciate you very much. All right, everybody. That's the Reverend Roger C. Williams. You have his information. Go look him up on the Facebooks when you get a chance on Sunday. <laughs> It's uh, something like he talks for like five hours or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. that. But uh, it is, uh, I promise you, you will be, um, you will be, uh, you will be fulfilled 
by doing so. And uh, we'll catch you in the next show.